Pitt at Large, I'm Leonard Lopate. The events in Ukraine have been dominating the news these days, but Jason Pack argues in his latest book that we shouldn't ignore Libya's ongoing conflict, which constitutes all the major geopolitical challenges of our era, from climate change to tax havens to Syria. Mr. Pack has spent two decades researching and doing business in Libya, Syria, Iraq, and other hotspots, and in his new book, Libya and the Global Enduring Disorder, he makes the case that we ignore Libya's implosion at our own risk because it's a harbinger of the types of geopolitical outcomes that are likely to emerge in our time. The book is published by Oxford University Press and brings Jason Pack, a non-resident fellow at the Middle East Institute and the founder of Libya Analysis LLC, to our show now. Welcome. Great to be with you, Leonard. Until recently, America had been withdrawing from the world and NATO has been splintering. The situation in Ukraine appears to be changing some of that. Why hasn't the situation in Libya had much of an impact? Well, it has had an impact. It has been emitting disorder and contagion into the global system. I would say similarly to developments in Syria, Yemen and and Ukraine. And as we know, migrants that flow into Europe or America have led to the rise of neo-populists and outcomes like Trump and Brexit are direct results of this more disordered world. And yet those neo-populists create more disorder because it keeps them in power. Now, you begin your book with a quote from the second century Greek historian Polybius. Uh, he, he wrote, the affairs of Italy and Libya are involved with those of Asia and Greece, and the tendency of all is to unity. Had, has his point been lost in the 22 century since he wrote that? Thank you so much for drink, bringing up uh, the Polybius quote. Um, I, I do think that Polybius is the real founder of history and not Thucydides or Herodotus, as many others believe. And why is that? It's because Polybius was attempting to do what he understood is a universal history, not studying one conflict in isolation, but extrapolating how events in different parts of the world affected each other and constituted an era. And, and my argument is that there had been a Cold War era with certain rules and certitudes and, and international institutions worked a certain way. And then there had been a post-Cold War world and American hegemony and the spread of neoliberal capitalism worked a certain way or didn't work, as you might argue. But now we're in a different era. I term this era the enduring disorder. And I want to bring a Polybian approach to seeing how events in one place such as Ukraine or Libya, affect events in other places such as Washington, D.C., or in the fight against climate change. So how would you define the enduring disorder? Well, thank you for asking that. Um, I don't think that there is a that's precise my, way, definition, just as one could not. Questions. It's my job Sorry, to say ask that again. Those, it is my job to ask those kinds of questions. Um, <laughs> you don't have of to course. thank me. <laughs> so. I don't think you can have a precise definition, just as if someone said define the post-Cold War period and its logic, you couldn't give a precise definition on a, you know, a, a radio program. But for me, the enduring disorder is characterized primarily by three or four features. The first is the withdrawal of American hegemony. Um, we have war weariness since the Iraq and Afghanistan failures. And, you know, the American electorate has probably drawn the wrong lessons and doesn't want to be ordering 
you know, international affairs or playing global, global policemen anymore. So that's one. And you say that the second mistake? is, you know, there's a lot of lag. I'm not hearing you when you're speaking. You say that's a mistake. Yes. I mean, I think the generals always fight the last war, but it's a shame when electorates do. Um, in other words, the lesson of the Iraq and Afghan war should be we need reasoned American leadership, not that we need brazen intervention. Right. But we've we've conflated those two things and we've drawn the wrong lessons. But so the second feature of the the enduring disorder is coordination complexities. So the Cold War doesn't end by producing new coordination institutions the way that World War II creates the UN and the Bretton Woods institutions. So for that reason, we don't really coordinate very well with our EU allies. And, and you might be right in saying that this Ukraine crisis is a fundamental game changer and we will have closer coordination both on economic and security matters. But I kind of doubt it. I see that as a blip because we lack the institutionality and enforcement mechanisms to deal with things like, you know, climate change or tax havens, we can have all the pronouncements that we want, but without enforcement mechanisms, it seems difficult to imagine a more coordinated international arena. So the, the failure to coordinate is the second, I would say, feature of the era of in, enduring disorder. And then a third feature is the proliferation of actors. States are not the primary movers anymore in this globalized arena. Individual billionaires, semi-sovereign institutions, um, monopolistic corporations like Facebook, the quick spread of, of disinformation on the Internet. The relative power of states has decreased. And then the last and final one that I'm going to throw out now for what constitutes the enduring disorder is that major international players wish to promote disorder rather than alternative forms of order. And that's very different than the threat that we faced from communism or fascism. Those were alternative forms of order. I would argue that Putin and Xi and the neo-populists such as Orban, Bolsonaro and Trump, they don't have an alternative order. They don't actually promote order at all. They're just happy to disorder the world because they believe it keeps them in power. So would you call the enduring disorder, a reformulation of classical realist theory in international relations? Well, I'm hoping to critique classical realist theory. I, I don't think it's a reformulation because realism is based on a kind of economics and physics model of the international system. It sees Newtonian laws at play in international events. So if one power wanes and other waxes. If there's an absence of order, a balance of power comes to reassert it. I don't believe that Newtonian physics operates in the international arena. So with the uh, decrease of American hegemony or American ordering of the globe, uh, I don't think anything is coming to fill it. So that's not really a reformulation of realism. It's just a, it's a critique. I would say, just like the critique of behavioral economics to classical economics, I think we need to look at the psychological factors behind actors rather than seeing them, you know, automatically trying to maximize their interests in some kind of economics or physics model. What makes the oil-rich North African nation of Libya a good case for explaining wider geopolitical dynamics? Right. So that is the thesis of, of my book and, and my career. It was that it all came together there first. Libya is not necessarily the most geostrategically important place on Earth. I would argue it's the fifth most important such place. 
but rather the key dynamics that I've articulated in the enduring disorder began to play out from the Arab Spring onwards there so that we see a failure of Western nations to coordinate the reconstruction phase after Qaddafi's fall. The Italians pulled in one direction, the French in another. So many people don't realize that Libya is the first place that Italian trained militias and French trained militias were on opposite sides of a hot war. And this is something that never could have happened during the Cold War. Uh, America simply Both wouldn't NATO have allowed. Members. Yes, not only NATO members, but our key European allies, right? Mm -hmm. We frequently have had NATO members like Turkey and smaller states on opposite sides of civil wars, but it's extremely novel to have core European states, you know, um, training opposite sides of a hot war and in fact having their own operatives doing reconnaissance for the opposite side. So that happened first in Libya. That's something important to point out. Wait, wait, let, and, let me stop you there because I want to follow up on that. You say that the Libyan situation reveals the weakness of international institutions and the inability of the EU, the UN, or NATO to serve as an appropriate venue to mediate different, differing Western interests. Correct. Those are implementation vehicles. So NATO is extremely good when there is already political will uniting the members. So the no-fly zone bit of the Libya operation was very successful, and NATO is a great coordinating mechanism. Just as the UN is a great coordinating mechanism, you know, when everyone agrees on, I don't know, sanctioning North Korea or something. But, but when there's but disagreement- But it doesn't in the, work with Russia because Russia has veto power. Correct. That's, that's exactly what I was about to say. But it doesn't work when there are competing interests because the Russians veto or the EU doesn't coordinate well when the Italians and French are on opposite sides because there's no enforcement mechanism. You can't even compel Malta, the smallest EU member state, to follow EU directives about uh, migrants in the Mediterranean Sea because the EU has no enforcement mechanisms. And this is this similarly the case with uh, NATO and the UN. You need a hegemon or different kinds of international institutions to create that political will. And what we have right now are only implementing vehicles. So if everyone in the world wanted the same penalties to punish polluters or to have certain kinds of carbon tax, then the UN would be a great venue to implement and coordinate that. But because we have different approaches, neither the Paris Accords or anything that the UN proposes can be implemented because there are no enforcement mechanisms in our current model of, of uh, international institutions during the enduring disorder. Can the fragmentation of Libya following the overthrow of Muammar Gaddafi be properly understood without placing it within the context of the enduring disorder? I would argue not. That a frequent analysis is, oh, Libya was bound to fail, you know, the racists say they're just Arabs. They weren't ready for democracy, which is, of course, absurd and, and, and not appropriate. Um, others might say, well, they had 42 years of dictatorship and no legacy of any kind of election. So, yeah, you know, I, I can see that. But the Libyans really wanted to make this work. You know, they voted um, a non-Islamist majority in 2012 to the General National Congress elections. And they're a very oil wealthy country with quite a bit of human capital and no sectarian fissures. In other words, you know, it's a 90 plus percent Sunni Arab society. It's not like, uh, you know, Iraq or Lebanon or Syria in terms of those deep divisions. So there are a lot of things that could have made it work if the Italians and Americans and French and Turks were on the same side of things. But as soon as 
uh, Qaddafi fell, the Emiratis and Qataris backed opposite militias. The Italians and French were on different sides. They had their own favorite candidates. And you can see the fissures of the international system pulling Libya apart, literally. And that's even without getting into the way in which Libya is a great microcosm, as is Ukraine. So I, I talk a lot about Ukraine in my book because the way in which Ukraine and Libya are conflicts which are embedded within the global economy. We're not talking about states like Syria or Yemen that are not connected to global finance or are poor. Libya and Ukraine have lots of oil wealth in the case of Libya or gas transit wealth and then oligarch wealth in the case of Ukraine. And it's deeply embedded in the financial institutions of London and New York and Panama and the Cayman Islands. And we can see the key features of how there is no policing global corruption. And it, it leads to suboptimal outcomes when uh, leaders and oligarchs have every incentive to stay in power, but none to try to coordinate for optimal outcomes for their people. Well, you were writing this book before uh, Vladimir Putin started threatening Ukraine, but did you already see uh, the, uh, the possibility of something like this happening? Yes. Um, I wrote an op-ed in the New York Times in 2014, right after the Crimea annexation. And I said that if we didn't unite and really have the strongest possible nuclear option of sanctions, he would eventually try to take all of Ukraine. Um, then when the impeachment happened, the first impeachment over the Zelensky phone call of July 25, 2019, I wrote in the Washington Post that Ukraine is the fundamentally most geostrategically important territory on earth. And that's something I've always stood by. And Halford Mackinder wrote that in 1904. So nothing has changed. And that if we were playing partisan politics and our policies towards Ukraine and Russia, it would encourage maximalism by Putin. So, um, yes, it's for this reason that uh, I was mostly writing this book between 2016 and the start of the pandemic. I had to include a lot about Ukraine because I felt that that would be like Libya, the most likely fissure uh, in the international system. My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large is Jason Pack. His latest book is Libya and the Global Enduring Disorder, published by uh, Oxford University Press. Uh, this is WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. You write that Brexit was partially propelled by an immigration backlash fueled by Libyan immigrants, or migrants anyway, and also that the... Can I interrupt you? Yeah. It's not Libyan migrants. It's rather the transit of sub-Saharan and Syrian migrants through Libya. Oh, okay. Same as the implosion of the Syrian state. It's the transit of migrants to Europe that allowed the weaponization by the neo-populist right of the migrant issue. But also that the 2012 murder of Ambassador J. Christopher Stevens in Benghazi played a role in the election of Donald Trump. Oh, it was pivotal because the lock her up chance uh, relative to Hillary could not be exploited by mainstream Republicans. It's impossible to imagine a Romney or Jeb Bush or Marco Rubio candidate stooping to the levels which were required to incite this furor uh, against Hillary Clinton. And this could only have happened as a result of the quote unquote scandal, which was the death of my very close friend, Ambassador Stevens, 
in Benghazi on September 12th, 2012. And this is a direct kind of consequence of the Arab Spring events, um, which then due to uh, the migration crisis that you mentioned and Ambassador Stevens' death and then email gate, people in America forget that email gate is actually about Libya emails that that Clinton had on her private phone um, rather than her State Department email. And those things were only able to be exploited by the neopopulist right. So it's actually the enduring disorder that gave rise to Trump, to Brexit and the state implosions in Libya, Yemen and Syria? Well, that's my contention. I I don't pretend that any of this is provable, Um, although I have a science background. I understand what we're doing as uh, commentators and scholars is proposing various hypotheses. They can't be tested in real time. There aren't enough case studies. But I think it's useful to not blame Trump or Boris for everything and to see the forces, in other words, the coordination failures in the international system, as giving rise to Trump, Putin, Erdogan, Orban, Bolsonaro, rather than seeing, oh, there are these evil people out there doing evil things. We need to look at the systemic reasons that they can come to power. Was there a particular event during the time you were working in the Middle East that led to today's geopolitical situation? Well, I don't know if there was an event that led to the geopolitical situation, but there were certainly events that I lived that led me to think of these structural issues. Because you were I also tell- representing U.S. business interests in Libya. So you had you saw, you saw this from another angle as well. That was exactly the anecdote that I was going to mention, which I think will resonate with the kind of WBAI audience. I was the executive director of the U.S. Libya Business Association, which meant I had a K Street office and, you know, had – these small companies as my members that no one has ever heard of, Motorola, Pepsi, ConocoPhillips, things like this. And I assumed, hey, I was doing informed matchmaking. The Libyans want products. The companies want to make profit. Sounds great. You know, I'd rather they have American goods rather than Chinese or Turkish ones. You know, works perfectly for me. But, you know, once I was ensconced uh, in my office in 2017, 2018, I presided over an association that fundamentally didn't want to grow U.S.-Libya business ties. And that's paradoxical. Why would the businesses want to, you know, not grow business ties? And this is because I think the obsession with analyzing corporations as wanting to maximize quarterly earnings reports or shareholder returns misses out on this dynamic that I call incumbent psychology. And we are entered an era with a certain kind of neo-mercantilism. And this isn't corruption. It's certainly allowed for various businesses to say, hey, I don't want to go on a trade mission to Libya, even though the prime minister invited us, which is what he did to my association and invited me personally to make this trade mission happen. Various Fortune 500 companies who were my members tried to sabotage the trade mission, even though it could lead to their selling more widgets or collecting back payments. And the reason for this is that that would open up this space to more reform. And they didn't want to be reforming the Libyan economy because they had the WhatsApp number of the central bank governor who could pay them. And this incumbent psychology is very much at at play in a declining power like America. So I kind of see capitalism in the way that Schumpeter does, which is that it leads towards monopolies, not that it leads towards free markets. And we need government and regulation to ensure free markets. So when you're in the trenches of that kind of business lobby and you can see 
incumbent players who want to stamp down on competition because they're already in. So let's close the door on new entrants. Are you arguing that the international system's interaction with Libya is an ideal way to describe the the key features of this new historical era? Exactly. Um, The reason for this is that differing than other post-Arab Spring conflict zones, Libya is so embedded in the global economy. You know, Syria and Yemen are just not uh, exporters of billions of dollars of investment or key nodes for the importation of products. But Libya has this overplay of these Fortune 500s that I represented, but then it's also 200 miles from Sicily, right? So we see a state which has the key dimensions of geostrategic importance, but then also financial importance. And it's by looking there that we can see that markets are not working the way that we thought that they might work. And the neoliberalism of the 90s didn't actually globalize free markets. It globalized a certain kind of market capture, which I term neo-mercantilism. And obviously, we see this with people like Facebook and Google, buy up every competitor. Once you're top dog, you want to tamp down and make sure that there is not a, a, a rising challenger. So it's not a a question of like increasing your quarterly earnings report because you just want to re- remain the dominant player. And I think you can see those dynamics, not only through my personal story, but by investigating the Libya conflict. Your personal story also involves winning the world championship of doubles backgammon in 2018. Uh, I imagine that has nothing to do with what we're discussing. Or well, I would say it has being... something to do with what we're discussing. I have a piece that I'm authoring right now for New Lines magazine about how you can use gambling analogies, mostly poker, although I do bring in backgammon to some extent, to understand Putin's decision-making matrix. He may have seen a constant trajectory of appeasement from Georgia in 2008 to the Syria red line to then Crimea in 2014, to say, hey, I can get away with this as well. And because Olaf Scholz and Biden didn't make a joint press conference about what they would do in terms of the SWIFT code, I mean, the SWIFT, yeah, the SWIFT system and Nord Stream 2 in a really uh, overt way, he thought that maybe the West was bluffing and he could call our bluff, or you could look at it as he was bluffing and we didn't call that bluff. And I think these analogies of poker and gambling are really, really important to understand why suboptimal outcomes happen with diplomacy. So we can't blame this enduring disorder on Donald Trump. He didn't set it in motion. Oh, by no means. And neither did any Libyan warlord. So this is something that precedes him and will continue even though uh, the political uh, world has changed since Donald Trump uh, no longer is in the White House. Yes, I think so. I mean, if you listened last night to the State of the Union, I was very pleased with a lot of what uh, uh, President Biden said. But he has inherited a lot of his policies from Trump. We withdrew from Afghanistan, which was a Trumpian policy. Biden went on and on and on about buy American, buy American. Why? Because there are certain structural features at play in the international system Um, to try to unpick them would have to do with why does the Cold War not end in a definitive treaty? Why is there no Versailles Treaty at the end of the Cold War? Why are there not international institutions that were created in the post-Cold War world like 
the UN or the IMF and the World Bank? And these are very complex questions to which maybe there are no answers, but these are institutional things that we need to grapple with um, rather than fixating on what many liberals, to my mind, in this country do, which is blaming Trump for everything. But don't you argue that the Trump administration was unique in its lack of desire to coordinate policy with its allies or internally among the different branches of government? A hundred percent. But the only reason that it could be like that is because of these various global and structural features, right? So it's it's a complex chicken and egg issue. If Trump had tried to run in 2000, as he did against Buchanan, he wouldn't have won. And if he had come into office, he certainly couldn't have behaved in the way that he did. Do you know what I mean? There's a whole range of things from domestic partisanship to certain change patterns on behalf of American corporates. For example, when we were ascendant globally, particularly after World War II, American corporations were all about free trade. You could never run on a protectionist platform in like 1950 because American manufacturers dominated the world. We were you know, we wanted more competition and more market access that Trump was able to say, you know, let's have tariffs. This is because, uh, you know, CEOs, not just the coal industry, but CEOs in many industries are not against protectionism or what I term neo mercantilism now. So that Trump was the way he was. This is a man who is malleable and has no ideological principles. He was largely created by the historical moment, I would argue. So you say the, the rise of neo-mercantilism is in the inevitable outcome of the declining competitiveness of American and other Western firms that now wish to insulate themselves from fresh competition? Correct. So this is, this is shocking, and I know most people don't realize this. The Libyan oil industry was built by American companies. All of the pipeline grids in the 1960s and early 70s, essentially laid by American and some British companies, American miners and majors, the miners, you know, Occidental, Marathon, Hess, they created the Libyan oil industry. Um, They were even dominant players after we sanctioned Gaddafi and uh, the American companies came back in after the detente period. We had eight majors or super majors, American ones in Libya in 2012. Now there's only one American oil company, ConocoPhillips, still left in Libya. Marathon sold sold their shares two and a half years ago. Hess just sold when I was running a trade mission to Libya two months ago. Why is this? Why is any and Total and others able to increase their stake and bet on the Libyan oil industry while American companies are running like droves, um, running away in droves? And this is because they're just less competitive. We used to have technological dominance in the oil field services industry. Only Halliburton and Bechtel could build certain things. But now it's not just Schlumberger. There are minor Chinese and Norwegian and Turkish companies who can do the technological things that our American companies can do now. We are are not dominant in the high tech or oil spaces the way we were 20 and 30 years ago. And this has slipped away from the American imagination. We don't realize this this parity that um, American technology has with other global players. Now, you say neo-mercantilism has replaced uh, incumbent psychology. Mm-hmm. What is that and uh, how did that work and why has it um, been replaced? It's neo-mercantilism is a product of incumbent psychology, oh, okay. not that it's replaced it. But my argument is that 
when you are declining power, you want to freeze the world how it is. Churchill, after he won the war, didn't want the British Empire to change. Yes, he was willing to have some small you know, uh, adjustments and Attlee pushed in this way and that way. But he envisioned a world in which Britain's position was essentially going to be as it had been previously. And this is the nature of a, an incumbent power. We, we are an incumbent power having won the Cold War and still being the, you know, the world's largest economy and the world's largest military. Um, this plays upon our political leaders. Oh, why don't we not get in front of this issue because the way things are now kind of works for us. Whereas, you know, uh, hungrier up and coming actors don't necessarily have to think in these incumbent terms. And I think that we see this in terms of an American willingness to change the very structures of diplomacy. We don't want to change them to fit what's required for the 21st century to tackle the current challenges of climate change and tax havens because what had been before kind of worked for us. Well, doesn't the concept of incumbent psychology suggest that it's primarily the individual power players, the CEOs, the presidents, corrupt bureaucrats who set the rules? Uh, it can be systemic. I mean, if you think of the way that in Wall Street, there is a desire to get your bonus at the end of the year based on the number of things that you sell or clients that you onboard. And it doesn't matter if you got that bonus, if they lose money after. That's an example of a wrong systemic incentive. So I think that there are incumbency uh, advantages throughout government and throughout organizations. Yes, it's most predominant in the C-suite and in important appointee jobs in Washington. But um, we live in an era where very bold and forward-looking leadership is more difficult than it was previously. So Biden is doing great leadership, but reactively. I firmly believe that if three weeks ago he had said to Vlad, hey, Vlad, we're going to do exactly this with SWIFT codes. We're going to arm the Ukrainians this way. The Germans are on board to cancel Nord Stream and the whole EU will rally. This wouldn't have happened. He could only reactively, oh, my God, I can't believe this has happened. Now we've reacted. And that is a result of a kind of incumbency to not get out in front of things. You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. National anthem for you. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Jason Pack. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $75 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, Libya and the Global Enduring Disorder. To do that, you just go online to give to WBAI.org. That's given, then the number two, WBAI.org, or you call 212. 212- Two zero nine two nine five zero during today's show, and we will be happy to send you a copy of the book. But don't forget to make that $75 donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at large, 
and thank you very much. And Jason Pack's book is published by Oxford University Press. How much is this a legacy of 9-11, the current situation? 9-11 changed everything. I mean, I was studying science at a small liberal arts college in Northwestern Massachusetts, but as a New Yorker, I decided to drop out of science and I moved to Beirut. And, you know, and then I was in Syria for my Fulbright and I left my doctorate at Oxford to go live in Libya. And many of my colleagues have also had their lives fundamentally changed to having to do the Middle East. We overreacted, no doubt. Um, American foreign policy was reactive again, rather than proactive. And this over-focus on jihadism as the primary threat in the 2000s has left climate change and conventional interstate warfare like with Russia as afterthoughts. And we've fundamentally not been prepared to meet the real 21st century challenges by overreacting to uh, you know, non-state actors, which certainly these you know, jihadis living in caves in Tora Bora or elsewhere were never going to be the primary global threat. They bombed these buildings hoping that we would overreact and we fell into the trap. What about the, uh, the responsibility of the, uh, the other autocrats in the world? Okay, we have Putin. Some people feel that Trump represents a, a tendency toward autocracy, but also Viktor Orban, Xi Jinping, uh, Jair Bolsonaro. How responsible are they for this situation? I think they're very responsible. And um, this is because they claim, all of them, to be putting their own country's interests first, Hungary first, um, even the five-star movement in Italy, which is an anti-EU uh, political party, they say Italy first. And are you, Wait, are you surprised that Orban has been critical of what Putin has done? No, but let me get there in a second, though. The reason that, that those things are myths is we live in a globalized world. There is no such thing as America first or Britain first, because 95 percent of all Western countries have the same interests. You know, a strong British economy helps America. A strong American economy helps the whole West. We're not in a zero sum competition. And this is, again, a thing about incumbent psychology. If you look at things in these bizarre neo-populist ways that, you know, Bolsonaro and, and, and Trump, but also the five star movement or Brexit does, it's like, oh, we can have more economic success here in Britain if we're not a part of the EU or we're not sharing it with others. But that's not the way the world works. <laughs> we're in a rising tide raises all boats. We're in a positive sum or a negative sum world. We either, you know, win together or lose together. This Ukrainian uh, intervention by Putin is going to hurt all global economies. You know, it's not like people are going to win from this. So uh, back to Orban, not at all. One of my arguments is that there is a myth that Putin and Xi want to order their near abroads or that they coordinate very well with their allies. Not true at all. Putin couldn't even get the Kazakhs to uh, recognize the Lugansk and Donetsk uh, People's Republics. And that's because coordination is just not the name of the game in our era of enduring disorder. Putin couldn't get Lukashenko to do what he wants. He's had to essentially take over Belarus to make it work. So, yes, he's not well coordinated with Orban, just as we're living in, an, in a world in which, you know, coordination complexity is the name of the game, given the amount of technology and, 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 and you know, uh, 
too much information. And you, you say that nowadays, or don't you say that nowadays major international players actively undermine the global order, rejecting collaboration and blocking knowledge accumulation? Yes. Well, what do you think blocking is- knowledge accumulation is things like what Trump would do. Oh, let's not have an investigation on this. Better to not set it down in paper. We don't need to keep notes at this meeting. <laughs> um, well, but, we could throw them in the garbage, in the toilet. Well, we could throw them in the garbage, right? And that, that's not the way that other right-wing American presidents would have behaved. So he's very unique in that, right? Um, if we look at Libya, and again, why I think it's a good microcosm here, Libya is a very positive someplace. If the oil sector is working in Libya and money is being spent coherently and reinvested in pipeline repairs and upgrades to storage tankers, then money can be ready to increase the health care and to send Libyan students abroad and to benefit the whole country. But, you know, one Federalist warlord blocks a pipeline. So then another one says, oh, I don't want to have, you know, the money from the central bank going to fund the Tripoli militias. Let's block all of the money. And you get into a zero sum or negative sum spiral. When in fact, the interests of pretty much all Libyans, as well as different political factions, is in the country producing oil, reinvesting that money. Um, It's a very positive sum place that succumbed to these negative sum spirals. And similarly, there shouldn't be vast differences in Italian or French foreign policy towards Libya. Yes, the French have a slightly greater focus on counterterror in the Sahel and North African regions. And the Italians, for a range of political reasons, have a slightly greater focus on migrants flowing through the Mediterranean and landing on Italy's shores. But that's like a disagreement about three or four percent of the range of policy things. The French and Italians should have been able to work together to help rebuild the Libyan economy and and uh, work with the Libyan politicians who wanted to work with them to stabilize the country. But instead, they fought over the three or four percent that they differ on rather than working together on the 95 percent on which they agreed. What have Russia's policies in regard to the Arab nations revealed? To my mind, it reveals that they prefer mm-hmm. chaos over exporting another order. And this is a contrast between Putin and the Soviets. A lot of the media these days says, oh, all Putin wants to do is to reconstitute the Soviet Union. You know, we've heard a million times he cried when, uh, you know, East Germany collapsed and he just wants to recreate the Soviet Union. No, the Soviets wanted to order the world. They may have had a, a broken ideology, but they had an ideology and they were trying to order the world. Putin is not like that. His use of the Wagner group in Libya is not to make Libya a Russian satellite. He didn't want General Haftar to win and become a Russian puppet. He was just happy for Libya to be in disorder to get back at the West for UN resolutions 1970 and 1973, which allowed a no-fly zone over Libya. And he thought that that was used to make a regime change rather than just a no-fly zone. And he's been bitter about that. So he just liked Libya to be a chaos and he supports Haftar a little bit, but not enough for Haftar to conquer Tripoli. And then he uses the Wagner group to destabilize the sectors there. And he doesn't care if Libyan oil is taken off the market because, oh, maybe that just makes Russian crude and Russian gas more expensive. So I, I think that Libya 
and Syria show us that he wasn't necessarily trying to get certain strategic interests like we hear about warm water ports. Oh, Russia really wants a warm water port in Tartus or maybe even a warm water port in uh, eastern Libya. No, I don't think so. That's thinking that he's a, a, a rational actor with concrete objectives. They just prefer a more disordered and more chaotic world. And th that, I think, is fundamentally different than, you know, uh, autocrats of a previous era. Is that what happened with Afghanistan? Yeah, I mean, they were just happy for us to lose in Afghanistan. And I think that the withdrawal from Afghanistan uh, was perceived by the Russians as a sign of American weakness that they could get away with this Ukrainian adventure. And they may have uh, overplayed their hand. They, in other words, they, they, they misread what Afghanistan meant. But you said that Putin has been just as poor at coordinating with the leaderships in Belarus and Kazakhstan as the United States has become at working with its traditional allies. Do you think all of that's going to change a bit as a result of this current situation in Ukraine? Wow, I hope so. Uh, obviously, like many others, I watch the news and I'm on the verge of tears about what the Ukrainian people are suffering these days. But I have a glimmer of hope. And some Russians I don't are think suffering the enduring as well. A lot of ru young Russians have been dying as a result. I have a feeling that that's going to uh, have a, a, an impact on Russian uh, public opinion. 100%. So I'm saying I have a glimmering of hope. My argument of the enduring disorder is that it won't endure indefinitely. It's only enduring because it has within it feedback loops that promote it. But it also has the potential of causing a reaction. And we might just be at that tipping point. And it has to do with, my mind, Western populaces changing their opinions. If all of a sudden, instead of Britons wanting to leave the EU and Americans saying, I want protectionism and let's keep out the migrants, to people saying, hey, why don't we work with our allies to sort climate change and have a more robust uh, relationship with NATO, and that may be the way people will be voting in 24, then we could be spiraling out of the enduring disorder because fundamentally in Western democracies, the people get to make these decisions. And when they're ready to put aside petty feuds between you know, the center left and the hard left or the center right and the center left and work on these shared objectives, then um, maybe this could end up being the inflection point. And when I see the about face that has happened in Germany's defense posture, um, I think that uh, great changes could be afoot here as well. But you've said that in your view, Trump, Putin, Xi, Erdogan, uh, and their allies haven't been the primary drivers of events, but are actually products of the enduring disorder, not its cause. So are you also saying that if Putin suffers a serious defeat as a result of this Ukrainian endeavor, it's likely to make little difference to the world system? This is difficult to speculate on, as you can imagine. Um, it depends on what follows him. If Russia just implodes the way that there was the Yeltsin period after Gorbachev, then Russia will still be an emitter of disorder. If randomly a consensus figure, whether it was Navalny or someone else, wanted to have a pro-international community Russia, which was not nursing its grievances as they did in the post-Soviet period, then that could be a game changer. I mean, but Navalny's uh, in jail right now. Yeah, but if the Putin regime collapses, he won't be. I mean, so we don't know what the next step is. And, and I don't think that Putin is the mastermind. I think that he is a product of various forces and he has made various miscalculations. But 
who knows if what we're seeing now is a blip or the changing of fundamental structures and the desire of populists. I'd love to see global governance not be a curse word of the right, but a rallying cry of the center left, you know, because global governance is really the only way to deal with these global challenges. A Ukraine and Libya, to my mind, Leonard, are coordination challenges more than their foreign policy challenges. And this is this is something new that I've interjected because the Iraq war was not a coordination mistake. It was that we had the wrong policy in the Pentagon. It was duly implemented, those policies in Baghdad. Whereas now there was no one policy in Washington, London, Brussels. It was a coordination problem towards Libya or Syria that led to these mistakes. And that's how different things were in 2011 than they were in 2003. So uh, again, new dynamics could emerge very, very quickly. Um, as your listeners will be living in their daily life, human history has really sped up. And this is a product of globalization, but look at how different life is now, even as we're coming out of the pandemic than it was two or three years ago. We've seen so many changes in the way that we do our business, run our lives and and the way that our economy works. So. You know, you, you know, as um, Heraclitus, the pre-Socratic philosopher, said, the only constant is change. My guest is Jason Pack, who is a non-resident fellow at Middle East Institute, founder of Libya Analysis LLC, and the author of Libya and the Global Enduring Disorder from Oxford University Press. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. What about China? Has it been any more successful in developing a workable strategy? So there are different paradigms here as well. Um, there's the China rising paradigm, and people may know Kenneth Pomerantz. The idea, particularly um, popular in the 1990s and certain academic, particularly in California and the northwest of the U.S., that the Chinese would be inheriting the global order. And just as they were teaching their kids to play classical violin, they would uphold a liberal rules-based order. Um, then there is another school of thought, which some people associate with, like Richard Haas, maybe Margaret Macmillan at Oxford, um, of multipolarity, that this is an era like World War I, and that, you know, we would just be in a multipolar competition and they would order their sphere of influence. I don't think we've seen that. We've seen with the pandemic, they're very happy to not share information that they had. And we've also seen that the Chinese want to do more and more surveillance on their own population and are happy with a disordered world in which they can get away with putting Uyghurs in concentration camps. So I just doubt from what we've seen of China that they're really keen to have a rules-based international system. But many people thought because of the Chinese uh, claims on Taiwan that they would back Russia uh, in this, but they haven't. The Chinese are very noncommittal. If you pay attention to their diplomacy in the Middle East, the Chinese do not involve themselves in any of the world's most important civil wars. Look at not only Ukraine, but Libya, Yemen, Syria, Iraq, and Venezuela. The Chinese do not seek to order any of the most important global hotspots. They don't even order North Korea, essentially. They let it do whatever it wants. So I would just argue that they have a non-committal approach. That's their view of foreign policy. 
let's have some transactional deals for resources in Africa. They don't want to take the risk of backing a losing side, whether that's in South Sudan over a resource deal or something major like Putin's uh, intervention in Ukraine. They're just very hesitant actors. And therefore, I don't think we can see this current Chinese regime as being a pillar for global stability. I want to get back to something you've been talking, you've dropped, uh, a word you've dropped out in a few times, hegemony. Don't some yes. people argue that we face certain dangers in a world without one hegemonic superpower in control? That's what I argue. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm no fan of the... So that would be the United States? I, I'd like it to be a Western coalition. I'm no fan of the kind of Dick Cheney, Karl Rove version of American hegemony, but... We do need, to my mind, a Western-led global order, which incorporates non-Western countries into this rule-based system and can have enforcement mechanisms for those who defy the international order. And why does hegemony work? It's because you need an institution or a block or a country to create and enforce the rules of the game. Coordination is so difficult. Imagine if you had 27 brothers trying to run a family business as opposed to one father. And this is just the nature of how, you know, the world works and biological mechanisms. When you have one leader, you can have coherent decisions. Sometimes those are the wrong decisions, but I'm afraid that we're faced with very Habesian choices right now. And with the 27 brothers trying to run the show, you don't end up with any one decision. Wasn't the creation of the UN intended to eliminate some of that problem? Exactly. And uh, unfortunately, the it UN has out, passed eh? its sell-by date. It's no longer fit for purpose. The UN was great in an early post-World War II world, and it reflected uh, the desires of the victor powers of World War II. But that was 70 years ago. We need new international institutions with new rules where India and Germany and others have as much power as France and Britain. Uh, on another front, one of your chapters is headed, jihadis are just a symptom. A symptom of what? Yes, I believe that jihadis are a symptom of the lack of governance. So the implosion of governance in various spaces, which we call ungoverned space in the trade, uh, is what leads to jihadism. So Libya doesn't have a tradition of Salafi jihadism. You know, there was there's no Hanbali Medhab there. They're not Wahhabi. The Saudi preachers really had very little foothold there before the Arab Spring. But in the wake of Qaddafi's ouster, we're looking at an ungoverned space. So this allows every little Salafi preacher to set up shop there. And uh, jihadis do something very important, whether it's the ungoverned spaces of southern Lebanon, where there are Shia jihadis, or, you know, Sunni jihadis in Yemen, they can provide certain local governance-like functions, whether it's schools or charity. And people are drawn to governance when they have none. So from Darna to then CERT, we saw jihadis providing state-like functions in Libya when there was no governance on offer. And therefore, if there had been governance, you know, the Libyans who got attracted to jihadism would not have been because 99% of the Libyan people are extreme opponents of Al-Qaeda and ISIS. And that 1% would never have been able to gain traction in a more governed space. Do you argue that U.S. policy towards Libya has veered this way and that over the years, but that the events of the spring and summer of 2019 stood out as a high 
watermark of, of chaos and contradiction? Yes. Fascinatingly, can we blame the first that on example, Donald Trump? Couldn't hear you. Can we blame that on Donald Trump? Because <laughs> you said oh, yes, that can blame be blamed Trump on Trump. Everything. But but it's 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 a long trajectory that goes back to Obama because remember the, the phrase leading from behind? Mm-hmm. There was an idea, oh, you know, we don't need to coordinate the allies. Libya is so near Europe, the Europeans will coordinate them. But unfortunately, the EU doesn't work that way. The EU doesn't have its own military. The EU can't impose various foreign policies on the member states. So Obama didn't really lead in Libya, and he got burned over the Benghazi fiasco, um, even though it wasn't his fault or Hillary's. It was just a silly conspiracy on behalf of the right wingers to blame it on him. But because we didn't lead, the allies were uncoordinated there in Libya. And that, to my mind, is a, is a great lesson for why hegemony is needed, because Libya was a win, win, win kind of situation. It could have been a win for the Libyans, a win for the West, and even a win for our traditional adversaries, because the Russians and Turks are owed lots of back payment money from the Qaddafi period that they also can't collect now I due have to, to leave the implosion there. of the Libyan state. Unfortunately, I have to leave it there. But uh, there's a lot more uh, in this book. Uh, it's called Libya and the Global Enduring Disorder, published by Oxford University Press. Jason Pack, thank you so much for being our guest today. Pleasure. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more about one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our over 600 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which recently surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else that you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep this show coming to weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org. That's give and the number 2, WBAI.org, right now. We need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content, information you don't usually get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $75 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, Libya and the Global Enduring Disorder by Jason Pack. So why not make that call right now at 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. You might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. But either way, I hope you'll call right now because WBAI relies 100% on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. Um, one more time, the number to make that 100% that, that uh, tax-deductible uh, contribution in support of 100% listener-sponsored radio here in New York is 212 212- Two zero nine two nine five zero. Go online to give to WBAI.org. And I hope you can join us tomorrow when my guest will be John Leshy, author of Our Common Ground, A History of America's Public Lands. We'll see you then. <laughs>